Gracious Heavenly Father, how good you are to us. We thank you for hearing our prayer this morning as we invited the Holy Spirit to be with us and bless us. And now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray once again (coughs) that you would lead us and guide us, that you would touch our hearts, and Lord, help us to turn our eyes towards you. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning, we're going to be covering the topic called Revelation's Most Amazing Prophecy. (coughs) As you know, there is scientific alarm about our planet and the future of humanity, and it's at an all-time high. One of the things fueling that alarm is the proliferation of nuclear weapons around the world. Now, back in the 1950s, scientists were worried about the mass stockpiling of nuclear weapons between the United States and the former Soviet Union. The Cold War had everyone worried. The stockpile continued until in 1990, the United States amassed nearly, how many atomic bombs do you think? 30,000 atomic bombs. The Soviet Union had 40,000. A record high. Russia and the U.S. have since lowered the amount of nuclear weapons that each have, but the numbers are still a great concern. And now both Russia and the United States have pulled out of that nuclear agreement February 2019. Now they're increasing their nuclear missile program again. In a stunning scientific paper, Joshua Pierce, a professor at Michigan Technological University, revealed the incredible danger that nuclear weapons pose to our world. Today, there are nine nuclear weaponized nations. The U.S., Russia, United Kingdom, France, China, India, Pakistan, Israel, and now North Korea. There are approximately 15,000 nuclear weapons globally. If we use 1,000 nuclear warheads against an enemy, and no one retaliates, we will see about 50 times more Americans die than did in 9-11 due to the after-effects of our own weapons. According to a recent estimate put out by an online news agency, the current number of approximately 15,000 nukes in the world would completely and totally destroy all landmass on planet Earth if detonated together. That should be concerning. Just a few hundred atomic bombs going off could create a nuclear winter so devastating, food crops worldwide uh, would be decimated. And those who did not die in the initial blast could die of starvation because of the lack of food available. This doomsday scenario has caused scientists from as far back as 1947 to create a clock that is now updated yearly by some of the top physicists and scientists in the world. They call it the Doomsday Clock. In 2020, the clock was the closest to midnight, thank you, that it had ever been, 100 seconds to midnight. And it's important to know that the clock can't predict the future. It doesn't tell us when the world will end, but it does tell us how close we are to the potential end of planet Earth as we know it. And as you contemplate the instability of the, Lord, of the world, if Earth's clock struck midnight, 
The question we all need to ask is, would I be ready? If today your life record was closed, would you be assured that you would make it? I'm not speaking hypothetical or some whimsy what if. We could each walk out out of here today and God forbid a terrible accident occurs on the road. And the question we all need to be asking, whether or not that scientific clock hits midnight tomorrow or not, we all need to know, am I ready? Am I ready? Are you at peace with God? Have you accepted Christ and His gift of grace and forgiveness and cleansing? The good news of the Bible that Jesus has taken your guilt and shame and carried it to the cross. You see, we know, the whole world knows, that eventually time will run out for planet Earth. And before that happens, God has a final last day message for His people. An urgent, in-time message to prepare the world for what is coming. The Bible declares that God has always sent warnings ahead of time to prepare His people in time past for what would come in the future. In 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15, it says, The Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by His messengers, rising up early and sending them because He had, what everyone? Compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. The Lord loves you. The Lord cares for you. The Lord sees the condition of your life today, and it is because of His love for you that He sends such an urgent warning. The Bible reveals that before God destroyed the world by a flood, He warned them. The Bible says that God told Noah, and Noah preached that warning message for 120 years. The Bible tells us that before God destroyed the wicked ancient city of Nineveh, God sent a prophet named what? Jonah. You've heard the story, Jonah and the whale. He sent Jonah. God didn't give up until Nineveh had received his message of warning. And even when his own prophet didn't want to give that message at first, Jonah finally went, preached the message to Nineveh, and before God does anything, he always warns us through his prophets. Before God sent a famine on Egypt, He sent a message through his prophet Joseph so all could prepare. Before the plagues fell in Egypt, God sent a warning message through his prophet Moses. And those who heeded the warning message escaped the plagues. Do you think God has a warning message for us today? Do you think God forgot about this group of people living right at the end of time? God never forgets. And God would never would never keep his final judgment of earth a secret from his people. Amos 3, verse 7. Can you read it with me? Let's read it together. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. We can count on it. It's a promise from God. God will do nothing unless he does what? Reveals his secrets to his Servants, the prophets. There is a pattern we see all throughout the Bible. God warns of coming judgment. God reveals His plan to save His people. All who follow God's plan are saved. All who ignore God's plan are lost. In the book of Revelation, God has an urgent end-time message. 
It's a message that warns of the time of God's final judgment. It's a message that reveals God's plan to save His people. All who follow this message will be saved, and all who ignore this message will be lost. It is a critical message proclaimed by three angels, and the Bible says it is a message for every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. A message for all people, all religions, a message to prepare the world for His return. It's a message for you and for me straight from heaven. And let's read this message together. You ready to read it? All right, let's read it together. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. An angel with an urgent message for planet Earth. Get ready, get ready, for God's judgment is come. Now before we continue, I want you to know who the angel really is. Is it Gabriel? The angel who announced the birth of Jesus is Gabriel, the angel who announces the judgment? Oh no, it's not Gabriel. The word angel in Greek means messenger. Angelos. You've heard of Los Angelos, Los Angeles. The angels really means in Greek the messengers and can refer to either a human messenger or a heavenly messenger, like an angelic being. Let me show you an example in the Bible where the word angel is used to describe a human messenger. Matthew 11, 9 through 11, it says, What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my... What? And you know what that word is in Greek? My angel. The Greek word there is angel. Behold, I send my angel. Now, who is Jesus speaking about? It says, Behold, I send my messenger, my angel, before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than who? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was given the... uh, the role, the job of being God's messenger, His angel, to preach a message to prepare the world for the first coming of Jesus. Jesus is calling John the Baptist the messenger who announced the coming of the Messiah, an angel, a messenger from God. The word messenger in the text is the same Greek word in Revelation 14 for the three angels. And we can see here that the term angel can also refer to human messengers. So if angels refer to human messengers, which angels are preaching the three angels' message of revelation? And here's a clue. The first angel preaches the everlasting gospel to the whole world to prepare them for the judgment of God. Jesus told His disciples... I want you to listen to what Jesus said to His disciples. Jesus told His disciples in Mark 16, verse 15, Go into all the world and preach what? The gospel. 
Who was it that was commissioned by Jesus to go to the whole world to preach the everlasting gospel? The disciples of Jesus. Not just the 12 disciples, but that commission is extended to every disciple of Jesus living today. That's you. That's me. Jesus also said in Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Who are the angels who will bring the gospel to the whole world according to Jesus? They're human messengers. That's God's people, God's church. It is the church, God's people, that preach the last end time message to prepare the world for the soon coming of Jesus. The three angels' message of Revelation is an end time message preached by God's end time church. His last day people to the whole world. Right now, we are fulfilling Bible prophecy because in this very prophecy conference is presenting the three angels' messages. And what is the crux of the message? Let's read it again. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment is come. All that this angel says, he says to prepare people for the judgment hour. The gospel is preached to prepare people for the judgment hour. A call to fear God and give glory to Him is proclaimed to prepare people for the judgment hour. The first angel's message is focused on the judgment. Now notice that the second angel is also focused on the judgment. In Revelation 14, 8 it says, And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The second angel that comes proclaims loudly that Babylon is fallen. This proclamation is a warning that the judgment of God is about to fall on Babylon. This message is amplified later on in Revelation with a call for God's people to come out of fallen Babylon so that they are not taken away by the judgment of God that falls on her. Revelation 18 says, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Now I have a future presentation that we're going to discuss uh, what Babylon represents And that presentation is entitled, The Bride, the Beast, and Babylon. And if you want to see that future presentation, you got to come to the Prophecy Seminar. You keep coming, we're going to cover who Babylon is, why it's uh, so important to announce that Babylon has fallen, how in the world could God's people even be in Babylon as God calls them out of Babylon, and we're going to discover all of that from the book of Revelation in a soon upcoming meeting. But whatever Babylon is, the whole world is being warned that this city, this religious power that sweeps over the whole world, uh, is fallen. Meaning, it used to be on the right track. Or, it may appear to many to be on the right track, but it has since fallen. Fallen from truth. Fallen from what is right. Babylon is fallen into sin. Now, the warning about the fall of Babylon is for you and for me living at the end of time. 
so that we won't be caught up in the popular movement of today that are leading millions away from God's messages in the Bible. It's a call to total commitment to God in the last days to stand for the truth, the Bible alone. If we follow fallen Babylon, instead of standing for what we see as truth in the Bible, we will be judged with Babylon, but the verse continues. It says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, uh, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And that, my friends, is the last thing any of us want. Now, before we continue, is anybody else roasting? I'm kind of hot. I wonder if uh, maybe one of the deacons could open a door or something, let in some fresh air, and uh, that, would be, that would be helpful. Now, it may just be me running up and down here in the front, but we don't want you getting so hot you fall asleep. These, this is an important message. So the third angel brings up another major issue at the end of time, and that major issue, and we find it throughout Revelation, is that at the end of time, there's going to be a major issue on worship. Worship is going to be a key issue at the end of time. Now, many people think that the major issue at the end of time is the beast, or a barcode, or a chip in the hand, but Revelation pins down that the issue at the end of time is an issue over worship. Thank you, Brother Alex. While the third angel warns of false worship, the first angel calls us to true worship. He says in Revelation 14, verse 7, read it with me. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So you see, God's end time message is a message calling us back to true worship. And it's interesting to note that in the Ten Commandments, in what, everyone? In the Ten Commandments, three out of the Ten Commandments are directly related to worship. Commandment number one, you know what that one is? Have no other gods but God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then you, that's worship God alone. Then you have commandment number two. And what's that one say? Thou shalt not... Uh, Have any graven images thou shalt not bow down to or worship idols. And that makes sense. And then the fourth one, the fourth commandment, also deals with worship. Commandment number four says, Remember the seventh day to keep it holy. The seventh day is God's holy day of worship. Three times the Bible mentions, or the Ten Commandments mention, worship. The third angel declares if we don't make a stand for God on true worship, but capitulate, compromise, join with the rest of the world in the way they worship, if we bow our knees to whatever the beast power and states as counterfeit worship, we will be judged with the beast and all that follow him. We cannot worship the beast. How many agree? We cannot worship the beast. And that is why there is a call to true worship at the end of time. Turn back to God. Worship Him. Turn away from false worship. Like Babylon, I have an entire presentation to uncover who the beast of Revelation is. It's entitled, The Mystery Beast of Revelation. 
And if I'm not mistaken, I'm going to be sharing that next weekend. The mystery beast of Revelation. And of course, we can't just cover that one. We'll also have to cover the mark of the beast. So we're going to cover the mark of the beast together next weekend. But what you need to know today is that those who end up accepting the beast power at the end of time and receiving his mark are those who comprise, uh, those who compromise, those who do not stand for Bible truth and true worship as outlined in God's Ten Commandments. So the first angel is focused on preparing the world for the judgment. The second angel is focused on keeping God's people from being judged with Babylon. And the third angel is focused on keeping God's people from being judged with the beast. So the crux of all, the crux of all three messages is the judgment of God. Well, at least I got a little comfort. <laughs> Thank you. But when is the judgment? That's the question. When is the judgment? When will God judge the world? When will he judge the Bab- Babylon and the beast? Well, this morning, we want to know something about the judgment. When does it take place and where does it take place? And to answer this question, we're going to go to the twin cousin of Revelation, to the one other major book that unlocks so much of Revelation's mysteries, and that is the book of Daniel. Daniel was given a vision of the judgment that helps us to understand it more completely. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, it says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Daniel is describing the typical courtroom scene. The judge enters. And who is, and he's the, called the Ancient of Days. And he sits down at his seat called the throne in this verse. The witnesses are all gathered together. That's the 10,000 times 10,000 who stand before the Ancient of Days. The books are opened. That's the evidence in the courtroom. Then everyone sits down, which means that the trial is beginning. So we have a few questions about this courtroom scene. The first question is, who is the Ancient of Days? Well, the answer is God the Father. Oh, did I give you the answer? (laughs) You guys are lucky. Daniel 7.13 tells us that the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days. And we know that the Son of Man is a title for Jesus because Jesus uses this title for Himself. Eighty-seven times the title Son of Man is used in the New Testament and every single time it applies to Jesus Christ. So, Jesus, the Son of Man, comes to the Ancient of Days who is God the Father. So we know that Jesus is there in the judgment and we know that God the Father is there in the judgment. But who are the 10,000 times 10,000? Did I give you the answer? No. Well, someone might say, I know those represent all the people in the world standing before God at the end of time to be judged, right? And let me say, that's an absolutely fantastic guess. But do you want to know for 100% sure what the Bible says? How many want to guess 
Raise your hands if you want to guess. How many want to know for sure and read it from the Bible? Okay, well, since you are unanimous on that, let's look together at the Bible. We're in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Read it with me together. Are you ready? Let's read it. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Well, that's just the number we read of in Daniel. And here in Revelation, it tells us that that number represents who? The angels. So you have God the Father in heaven. You have the Son, God the Son in heaven. And then you have all the angels there as witnesses in the judgment. But where are all the people of earth? Where are all the people in the judgment? Well, the people are all right here on earth. You see, the judgment doesn't take place on earth. It takes place in heaven. Heaven is where God's throne is, right? In Psalm chapter 11, verse 4, it says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. So here you have a judgment that takes place in heaven, not earth. The Father is there, the Son is there, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands of angels. That's over 100 million angels are all there in the temple of God. That's a big temple with all the angels and there the books are open. Isaiah 66, 1 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. For the Ancient of Days to sit on His throne and for there to be only the angels and Jesus there, we know this can't be a judgment that takes place on earth. It has to be one that takes place in heaven. And this judgment has to occur before all the people on planet earth get there. Now let's go back to the first angel's message here because it says something about the timing of the judgment. Revelation 14 verse 6 says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. Now, does the verse say the judgment will come? No, the Bible says it is come or it has come. This urgent end time message that is preached by God's people on earth to the whole world before the second coming of Jesus reveals that the judgment has already begun in heaven. We are living in the judgment hour right now. Right now. Now, now wait, hold up preacher, wait one minute, back up. Are you saying that there is a judgment going on in heaven right now, this very minute? Yes, but I'm not saying it, the Bible is saying it. The Bible tells us that right before Jesus comes, a judgment begins in heaven. And that's why the three angels' message is so vitally important to us today. Because once that judgment is finished, those who end up on the wrong side of the judgment are lost forever. You see why this judgment message is so critical? Now someone here may say, but preacher, I've always believed that when I die, that is when I face the judgment. And in some ways that is true. You certainly can't change your life once you die. 
Today is the day God is giving to each one of us to make changes because tomorrow is not a guarantee. Once we die, the next event to really affect our eternal destiny is God's judgment. But does God's judgment happen at the exact moment we die? Do we drift up through the clouds and stand at the pearly gates to face the judge? Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Now, does this verse say that the judgment happens at death or after death? After this, the judgment. Meaning that the judgment will occur after our death, not at our death. And this confusion, confusion is cleared up when you look back at Revelation in the fifth seal. It says, And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. Now, have these people died? Yes or no? Yes. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Now, these people have died. Did they have a judgment right after they died? Yes or no? No. And how do we know? Because they're still waiting for the judgment to take place. Do you see that? They say, how what? How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Adam died long ago, waiting in the grave, still waiting for the judgment. Eve, Noah, uh, David, the apostles. Now, what is the question of these martyrs who have died for Jesus? Their question is, why, Lord, have you not judged? Revelation 6, 9 through 10. Now, notice that the point of the text in Revelation is that God waits to administer the judgment. He doesn't judge immediately when we die. In Luke chapter 18, verse 7, it says, And shall God not avenge His own elect who cry out day and night to Him, though He bears long with them? The idea that when a person dies, they face the judgment at that moment is a popular myth. All through the Bible, we have recorded that God has a specific time when He will judge the whole world. Revelation 14, 7 says, The hour of His judgment is come. Psalm 75, verse 2. When I choose the what? Proper time, I will judge uprightly. Romans 2, verse 16. In the what? In the day when God will judge the secrets of men. Acts 17, 31. Because He has appointed a what? A day on which He will judge the world. And friends, that day... That hour, that time when the judgment occurs, happens before the second coming of Jesus. Now, someone else may say, but preacher, I thought that the judgment occurs at the second coming of Jesus. And it is true that the results of the judgment occur at the second coming of Jesus. But the actual investigation, the actual judging, the heavenly trial over each soul occurs before the second coming. Daniel 7, verse 22, it says, Until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and then the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Notice that the judgment occurs first, 
and then the reward for the saints occurs after. We find two things. Number one, a judgment is made for the saints. And number two, the saints possess the kingdom. Which one happens first in the verse? Do the saints first possess the kingdom or are they judged and then they possess the kingdom? Judged first, then they possess the kingdom. The verse reveals that the judgment happens before the saints possess the kingdom. And tell me, when will God's saints possess the kingdom? Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He shall sit upon His throne of glory. Then shall the King say unto them on His right hand, Come, ye blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The saints possess the kingdom at Jesus' second coming. So the Bible teaches that the judgment happens first before the second coming, not at the second coming. Is that clear? We see it crystal clear from the Bible. When Jesus comes in the clouds, He doesn't need to decide at that point whether or not people should be saved or lost. That decision has already been made, sealed, and ratified in heaven. When Jesus comes, He's simply coming to give His reward to divide the sheep from the goats, to take the righteous to heaven and leave the wicked. The decision has already been made before Jesus comes again. In Revelation twenty-two twelve, it says, And behold, I come, what? Quickly, and my what? My reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. It just doesn't make sense to sentence someone to eternal death or give them the reward of eternal life before there has been a trial. Every country in every time period around the globe have allowed the accused to stand in a trial before they were sentenced. Now, how many of you would like to be accused and sentenced and not given a trial? Can you raise your hand? Not one of us. Why not? Why not? Because it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be fair. Satan accuses every person here. How do I know that? Revelation tells us he is the accuser of the brethren. Friends, would you like to never have a trial against Satan's accusations? Or how many of you would like a trial with Jesus as your lawyer, your advocate, and judge? Amen. Amen. With your name cleared and the accusations of Satan, Satan completely put down for all eternity. And that is why God brings a trial before the second coming of Jesus. Satan has accused us before God and before the universe. He points to our sins, our failures, and our shortcomings, and he declares to the sovereign of the universe, if you kill me, then you have to kill him or her too. Because they also have sinned. You see, there must be a judgment to determine whether the accusations of Satan are just and true. Now, I can hear someone say, Christians don't need to be judged. They've placed their faith in Jesus. It's the wicked who need to be judged. And yes, that is true, but the Bible also declares that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Can Christians be name-only Christians, yes or no? Yes. Can people say, I accept the sacrifice of Jesus, but not really accept it? 
Is it possible to be named among the disciples but not be a true disciple? Have you ever heard of a man by the name of Judas? Absolutely. And yes, it's true. Matthew 7, verse 22 and 23 says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. The Bible is telling us that just because you have given great sermons or prophesied or you're a pastor or priest doesn't mean you cannot be lost. Your Christian name, a religious title or position in church won't save you. You can be a name-only Christian and still be lost. If someone professes to be a Christian, but in their heart they cherish sin, you may not know it. The angels may not know it. But there's one who knows. God knows it. No one can read the heart, but God, man, but God says, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That convicted felon may have fallen on the rock Jesus Christ and had his hardened heart broken by the love of Jesus in prison, and you never saw it. But you know Jesus died for him too. You can't read the heart, but God can. And, and that's why God alone can judge now. Or that saintly person who always dressed so nicely and always wore that beautiful smile. You can't see what God sees locked away in their heart. You know, we're good at faking. We don't know what God knows that happens behind closed doors. But in the judgment, every secret is written in the books in heaven. And the angels all gather together before God to review what is written down in this judgment. They will see what God alone could see. Because it is all written down as a perfect record. Did you know that the Bible says that we shall judge angels? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3 says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. So if we will judge angels, don't you think it's possible that angels may be involved in our judgment too? Every question answered. Every mind satisfied. Every person understanding and seeing the issues clearly. The Bible tells us in the book of Daniel that in this heavenly trial, this investigative judgment in heaven, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels stand before God when the books are open. Those books contain all your works. Everything that God could see and hear and know about your life are written down in the books and will come up in the judgment. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. For God will bring how many works? Every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. The Bible tells us that we will even give account of our words that were spoken. In Matthew 12, verse 36, Jesus says, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Now, where are these works, these words, and these thoughts recorded? Well, they're recorded in what the Bible calls the books. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 12 says... And the dead were judged according to their, their works by the things which were written in the, in the books. 
As God opens the books, the angels lean in as one name after another is read by the court, and the works of each life are considered. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want the things that I've thought or said or done displayed for all to see. I don't want to have to face the judgment. But the Bible makes it crystal clear that no one will be able to skip out on the judgment. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, read it with me. Are you ready? Let's read it together. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Does that include Christians? Does that include everyone? Oh, yes. Luke 12, verse 2, let's read it together. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Now, who are the first people to face the judgment? Who are the first names to come up in the judgment? And 1 Peter 4, verse 17 says, For the time has come for the judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, that's Christians, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Those who have professed faith in Christ will be the very first people to be brought up in the judgment. They've had the greatest amount of light, and so they are the ones who are held accountable for that light that they have received first. Their life will be the first to be examined. But I guess the haunting question is this. If we can't run from the judgment, hide from the judgment, and we all must face the judgment, how in the world can we pass through the judgment? I mean, has God provided a way for us to make it through this end-time judgment? If you look at your life and I look at my life, I say, alone, there's no way I could make it. My past is too broken. My life is too shattered. There's too many things wrong in my life for me to pass through the judgment if I've got to pass through it alone. I don't have a perfect record. Anybody here have a perfect record? At least not in the eyes of heaven. The answer, though, is found back in the first angel's message of Revelation 14. The answer of how to pass through God's end-time judgment, how to escape the judgment of Babylon, and how to escape the judgment of the beast are all laid out there in the first angel's message. God has revealed His plan to save His people. And we're going to read it here in Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. God's plan to save the world is the everlasting gospel. That is God's plan. That is how we pass through the judgment. The word gospel means good news. And what is the good news? Well, tonight... Someone right here is carrying a burden of guilt. Guilt and shame for what you've done in the past. The kind of life you've lived. Someone tonight, or someone this morning I should say, knows that they have not lived up to what they know is right. And many of us feel if we could just start over, if we could just erase the past, if somehow those records in heaven could be cleansed, wiped clean, somehow, well, the good news The gospel is that Jesus took upon himself our guilt, our shame, and our condemnation. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, it says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us or the sin of us all. Your sins and my sins were laid on Jesus and he took them to the cross. Why the cross? Why must Jesus carry our guilt with him to the cross? Why must Jesus carry the burden and weight of our sin as the crown of thorns were pressed into his head and his back was beaten with rods and those cold nails driven through his wrists and the rough cross dropped into the ground? Why must he bear our sin as the life of the Son of God flowed crimson red from his broken body? Because, dear friends, the wages of sin is death. Because, my friends, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Hebrews 9.22 Jesus bore our guilt and paid for it by His death. He gave His own blood as the purchase price for you to walk innocent in the judgment. The reason you can have life is because Jesus tasted death for you. There is power in the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus has the power to wipe your sin-filled record clean so that you can face the judgment with confidence, so that you can know that there is nothing left to be held against you. In 1 John 1 verse 7 it says, The blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from most of our sins, from some of our sins, for only the greatest sins, for only the least of sins. Now the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all our sin. Praise the Lord. To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Revelations testimony. Chapter 1, verse 5. Now some people feel so guilty that they have not lived a perfect life. But who has lived a perfect life? Not one except Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus took on human flesh, He gained the victory in every area where we have experienced defeat. And that's good news. That's the gospel. Jesus didn't gain the victory for Himself. He gained the victory for you. The Bible says that when Jesus took on flesh, He was in how many points? All points tempted as we are, yet without what? Without sin, praise the Lord. He lived a perfect life. The blood of Jesus Christ not only purchased for you forgiveness of sins, but the blood of Jesus Christ offers you tonight a sinless record. His own sinless record for you so that you can pass through the judgment. The perfect and sinless life of Jesus can be written under your name in heaven's judgment. All that Christ has accomplished all that He has purchased with His blood, all that Jesus suffered for and died for, He did it all for you. Christ was treated as we deserve. This is one of my favorite authors. She says, Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as He deserves. He was condemned for our sins in which we had no share, that we might be justified, which means pardoned by His righteousness, His sin-free life in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life which was His. In essence, Jesus traded places with us. He took the wrath of God upon Himself so that we could take the pleasure of God upon us. Do you see it, friends? Our only hope in the judgment is not a hope that we will someday be good enough 
Our only hope is not that we will be able to pay for our past mistakes and sins or past deeds. Your good behavior won't be weighed against your bad behavior on the day of judgment. The, (coughs) The Bible says, all have sinned, all fall short of God's glory, all have missed the mark. Don't look to yourself, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. When your heart trembles and fears for the judgment that's coming, don't look at your past mistakes. You cast those mistakes upon your Savior and you say, Lord, you carried them to the cross for me. You bled and died for me that I might stand with a free conscience knowing that because of what Jesus has done, I can be saved. Place your faith in Jesus, friends. Faith breaks the hold of Satan. Faith breaks fear. Faith breaks the bondage of Satan in your life. Place all your faith and your hope in Jesus. And return, you're going to have peace. And you're going to have that wonderful assurance that is granted to all of those who love Jesus and wait for His appearing. Don't you want that assurance today? Oh, yes. We place all our faith in the promise of Jesus because I'll break my promises, but the Lord will never break His promises. And if He promised to cleanse you of your sin, then He can be right even if I'm all wrong. Cast yourself on His merits in the judgment. Let your hope build around His perfect life. Trust in His promise. Lean upon His love. Believe Him when He says, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. What a beautiful promise. Imagine the judgment. Imagine with me the judgment scene in heaven. The judgment is happening right now. Imagine with me that the Ancient of Days is seated. The Father of glory and light. The only righteous judge in all the universe. Gathered before Him are millions of angels. The one question that must be settled. Can the blood of Jesus save these sinners who have for so long been enslaved in their sins? Will a holy God accept them? Is the sacrifice of Jesus enough to satisfy the judgment? And then your name is brought up. Your name is read there on that gleaming page. As the book is open, there your name is. And as the angel turns the page that lists your deeds, your every act, your thoughts and your words, all the dark secrets of your life are laid bare on that page. And as the angel turns that page open, who should stand? But Jesus, (coughs) the Son of Man, (coughs) He comes to the Ancient of Days. He's standing there for you, friend. He's walking over to the judgment bench for you. The angels lean in to listen for Jesus, the commander of heaven's armies, is about to speak. He raises both hands and declares over your name, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And as the angels look and as you look, you see their scars. Scars in the left hand and in the right hand where the nails were pierced. uh, Where the nails were pierced for you, friends. All the angels behold, behold the marks in the hands of Jesus where the nails were pounded and pierced. Where the blood flowed freely from those gentle hands. All the angels remember the day Jesus cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, and it is finished. Then someone says, 
But the book, the book, what about the sins written in the book? And the word of God thunders through all heaven for you. These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But what will you do with the sins in the book comes the cry again. And our advocate, Jesus Christ, speaks again and says, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. For the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And when Jesus speaks, speaks these words, the page, that awful page that contained the darkest secrets of your life begins to shine. Gone is the record of sin. Gone are the awful deeds. Gone are the dark secrets that were written under your name. And the Ancient of Days speaks, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Just now, the words blaze from the page in bold red, forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus, accepted as a son or daughter of God. Friends, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to be called the children of God, even to those who believe on His name. An angel who stands near, nearby takes up his pen and another book is opened, which is the book of life. And there he writes your name. And with the last stroke of his pen, all heaven rejoices. The angels sing a chorus, for you were lost, but you put your faith in Jesus Christ and now you are found. The judgment finds you ready for heaven. You cannot now be lost. Your name is written in the book of life. You are sealed and saved. You know, friends, the story that we just went through doesn't need to be an imagined story. That really can be the story of your life. You don't need to fear the judgment. Only look to your advocate, Jesus. I'd like to invite those who want to place their faith in Christ this morning to bow your head just where you are. Maybe you've been fighting an addiction and you want to place your life in the hands of Christ this morning. Maybe you've been struggling with alcohol. Maybe you've been struggling with another addiction in your life. Smoking, marijuana, a drug addiction. Maybe Satan has had you at the throat for so long and tonight or this morning you want to be free. This morning you want the Lord in your life. You want to be free from whatever you've been battling. I don't know what you've been fighting, a hand-to-hand battle with Satan this morning, but Jesus can make you free. I want to give you an opportunity to make a bold stand for the Lord today. By standing, you are placing all your faith in your Savior Jesus. And you're saying, Lord, from this day forward, I'm going to walk in your power and be free from these addictions. Is there someone here? two or three or four, ten people here who have been fighting an addiction and they would like to stand and say, Lord, I'm going to claim your victory. Amen. Amen. The Lord sees you. God sees you. Amen. Praise the Lord. God sees you. Amen. Thank you for standing for for Christ. Place your faith in Him. Place all your faith in Him. Cry out to Him. Don't look at me. Close your eyes and pray to the Lord. Say, Lord, I need you in my life. I'm standing not for others. I'm standing for you this morning. Is there another? 
Is there another person here today who has been fighting a hand-to-hand battle with addiction? They want to be free. They want the Lord to free them. They want to stand in the judgment free from all that burdens their soul. Jesus can free you today. Stand. Stand for Him. Don't stand for me. Stand for Him. Say, Lord, I want to place all my faith in You this morning. I'm going to stand for You as a symbol that I'm putting my faith in You and not in myself. Lord, you see those who are standing right now, who are exercising their faith by standing right now. Lord, I want to claim your promise that when we by faith put our faith in you, that you account that faith for righteousness. I pray that you would account it right now to those who are standing, to those who have placed their faith in you, to those who want to be free and free forever. Lord, break the the power of Satan in their life. Because only you can do it. And Lord, those who are standing and those who bow their head this morning are placing their faith in you as their advocate, as the one who will stand for them in the judgment. And I pray, Lord, that the blood of Jesus would wipe their sins clean and that they'd be able to move forward from here without any stain of guilt, without any stain of sorrow and shame. Lord, hear this prayer this morning. Hear the prayers that are rising to you this morning. And thank you, Lord, for your judgment, which will find us being declared righteous, that we might stand when you come again And be taken to heaven when you come again. Thank you for moving upon hearts this morning. Thank you, Lord, for humbling our hearts this morning to call upon you for help. Please help none of our souls to draw back in timidity or fear, but let us continue to press forward in faith in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.